This morning we're in Acts chapter 2, and we have come upon one of the great sermons in history, one of the great sermons of Scripture. I remember traveling to the Holy Land, and, and one of the moments that gripped me the most is I was standing on the southern steps of the temple. You know, the very same steps that Jesus would have walked up and down multiple times with his disciples, and the very place, at least in that general vicinity, on the same steps, same area, where Peter would have delivered a message just like this, where he spoke on that day in that spot, and man, God's glory was all around it, God's power was all through it, thousands got saved that day, and the ripple effect was, well, immeasurable. And I think about this great sermon of Scripture, and so we get to do that today. Here's a little, maybe a little bit of trivia. If you were to stand up and read aloud Peter's sermon at Pentecost and do it at a slow, you know, rather methodical pace, you could do the whole sermon in about three minutes. Um, the second great sermon in the book of Acts, one of Paul's sermons, you could read aloud in about a minute and a half. So I know what some of you are thinking. So if Peter could preach down heaven and see thousands saved at Pentecost and do it in three minutes, what's your deal? <laughs> ah, but you're missing something. Because if you open up your Bible to Acts chapter 2, I want to point your attention to a very important verse. Acts chapter 2 verse 40 says this, and with many other words, <laughs> he bore witness and continued to exhort them. With many other words, and in all seriousness, the sermon that we, that we read in Acts chapter 2 is an exemplary sermon. It's the sort of sermon that's from my side of the equation, I should always attempt to preach. And it's the sort of sermon that from your side of the equation, you should always expect to be preached to you. It's a prototype, I think, of biblical preaching, expository preaching, a sort of preaching that deals with the text and explains the text. It's Christ-centered. Christ is all through it. It deals with Old and New Testament texts and brings them to bear with explanation. That's expository preaching. The Holy Spirit has empowered it. It's not just a clever man speaking interesting words. It has its effect because God's Spirit causes it. It's serious. It's personal. It's full of good news, the gospel. And it demands a response. And so that's my aim today. My aim today is to do justice to this text, expound the scriptures, pray that God's spirit is in it, deal with it in a serious way, but a personal way to you. I hope that you respond. Let's pray. Father, without your spirit, what are we? We can't be a church without it. We can't be Christians without it. We sure can't be witnesses without it. No, without Him, without your Spirit in us, the person of your Spirit in us, unless His presence is here, Lord, we just gather. We may feel good about the gathering, and we may enjoy it, and we may even be encouraged or charged up afterwards, but the results are not long known or felt. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would visit us today and that He would illuminate these words of Scripture. He would stir up our hearts and break up that hard ground 
melt those cold hearts and speak deep truth in deeply. Enable faith so that we would respond. Or may we be amazed at what you do. Lord, for the believers in this room, I pray that they would be encouraged as we revisit the gospel. That they would be challenged with all of its implications. That we would be better equipped to speak of you, to speak of hope in this dark world in which we live. And Lord, mostly that you'd be well pleased. Look down on us, Father, when we're finished because of how we've handled your word, how we have obeyed it, how we've responded to you. And Father, be pleased, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2. You open your Bibles starting in verse 14. And I want to begin with just sort of a brief introduction. I titled this message, and I really circled back around several times to what I was going to title it. And I, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of message titles. I don't think they matter that much. I don't think that's the part that sticks with you, what clever title I ascribe to a text. But I pulled a phrase from Peter's message that I think is important for us to start as a baseline. And so I titled this message this, The Definite Plan of God. I want to make sure that for every believer in this room, that you build your understanding of the gospel here, that it starts here. Start with this truth. God planned all of this. When you're singing those songs about the crucifixion of Christ, the blood of Jesus, when you're reading those scriptures and you see the grave injustices and the violence, and you see the hatred, and we see what the Roman soldiers did, or the Jewish religious leaders did, or the mob of crowd calling out crucify him, please understand that the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, all of these are part of God's eternal plan. This is what God willed to happen. The gospel was not God's reaction to man's sin. It was not God looking down at us saying, I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. What are we going to do now? There's no hand-wringing in heaven. This is God's plan, carefully predetermined, through which he would display his goodness, his graciousness, and ultimately, when all is culminated, his glory. This is all part of God's plan. It was conceived before time began. What we know of time, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes this, God who saved us called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not only was it conceived before time, it was completely carried out in Christ. I mean, when we hear this text today, our elevation of Jesus and what he's done for us just ought to go through the roof. It's all carried out in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ who has blessed us in every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And it was consummated in heaven, carried out completely to its end by God and by God's will. Matthew 25, 34 says, the king will say, this is the speaking of judgment one day, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the grand work of God. Here's where we're going to begin our text today, verse 14. You remember last week, we were... We were in the beginning of chapter 2, and the falling of the Holy Spirit 
on the believers who had gathered at Pentecost, and the church was born, and it was a fulfillment of the promise that God had given them. Go to Jerusalem and wait, and he said, you will receive power. Now keep this in mind, I'm throwing a lot of things at you this morning, but I just want to make sure all these parts stick. When the scriptures promise us, when Jesus had promised us that the church, his disciples, would receive power, it's not the same thing as saying the Holy Spirit is a power. The Holy Spirit is the means by which the power comes. The Holy Spirit is a person, a part of the Trinity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. So when the Holy Spirit comes, when He, who is God's Spirit, comes, accompanying His coming will be power. Now, what's the power for? He said, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. So this great commission that God has given His people, and not just to those original apostles, those original disciples, that original band of believers, but to every generation of believers since. You're my witnesses. You're my ambassadors. You're representatives of the King here on this earth. You're God's mouthpiece, His voice, to bring about the birth of the kingdom in people and in nations. And he says, you'll receive power to accomplish that which I've commanded you to do, to carry out this mission. And so when you see all that's happening at Pentecost, and, and they begin to speak in other tongues, the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, and people heard the message being spoken to them in their own languages, and this great miracle of speaking and hearing, and all these things happen, we look at that and say, why? Why did the Holy Spirit fall like that? Why did God determine to do that? What was the end of it? Well, Peter answers that immediately after. Here is the reason the Holy Spirit came like he did, did what he did, why the miracles that accompanied his coming came. Here's the answer to that. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the purpose of his coming, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is this. It's the glory of God the Father through the mighty works of God the Holy Spirit, in the salvation achieved and offered through Jesus the Son. Let me say that again. Here's the purpose of Pentecost. It's for the glorification of the Father. Through the mighty works of God, the Holy Spirit, in the salvation that's achieved and offered through Jesus the Son, that the nations would come to God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the purpose of His coming at Pentecost. So here's some things that we see in the passage. And I just want to give just a quick overview before we delve into the heart of Peter's message. First of all, Pentecost was a fulfillment of prophecy. When Joel spoke generations before about the falling of the Holy Spirit, he was talking about what God was going to do in this final epoch of time. And God's going to pour out His Spirit that would enable all of His people to, and the word is prophesied, that doesn't mean fortune tell. That doesn't mean forecast. That means to speak truth of God. Everybody who has a voice to speak, 
Who can tell of the wonders of God? Who, who can share the goodness of Christ? Who can share the story of their salvation? Who can share the wonders of what it means to be a follower of Christ? Everyone, he's going to pour that all on you so that when you go as his witness, you go in the power of his Holy Spirit. He says this is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a, it's a confirmation that we are in what the Bible describes as the last days. We are in those last days. And those last days are going to culminate with what Joel said, that great and wonderful day, that final day. That day that's a day of dread and terror for the enemies of God. That day that is a day of great joy and celebration and vindication for all the people of God. That return of Christ, that day when he comes to judge the nations. That's the day we're we're speaking of. He says this display that you see at Pentecost is a display of the generosity of God's spirit. He's pouring it out. And the idea of him pouring it out also carries with it the concept that once it's been poured out, it's not going to be picked back up again. This is not like in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God would visit upon certain people at certain times and places for certain events and certain activities when God's Spirit fell. God has poured out his Spirit lavishly on his people, and his Spirit remains with us until the task is done, until we're finished, until the return of Christ. He's generous with his Spirit, and so all of us who are in Christ have it. In fact, the Apostle Paul will later write, if you don't have the Spirit of God, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he's none of his. He doesn't belong to God. The Spirit, the Bible tells us, is the mark that guarantees that we belong to him. It's the seal that God has placed upon those who are his, guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing that we belong to him. It's also a promise that God is going to do wonders through his Spirit. He's going to do amazing things. And I'll just give you a sneak preview. You know, there are miraculous things afoot in the book of Acts. And I'm not about to try to explain those things naturally. I'm going to point to it again and again as I couldn't imagine how this happened. I can't tell you how this takes place except for the miraculous work of God's Spirit through people. This is God. It's not meant to be understood in natural terms or human terms. These aren't just ideas that people had. This is not just an ancient civilization's way of trying to perceive the world around them. No, it's none of that. These are works of God Almighty for the glory of God and the salvation of people. And they're going to be poured out. And there's a universal offer. The culmination of the purpose of a Pentecost is found in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's going to pour this out in the power of his Spirit that every repentant... no. Let me back up. Every believing, repentant person will be saved and filled with the Spirit. This is God's promise. So again, that purpose, glory of the Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and the salvation given to us through the death and burial, resurrection of the Son. It's the Trinity at work for our salvation. Let's look at the message. This is the gospel as preached by Peter. I was doing some reading this week about biblical sermons. Um, what I mean by that is you know, sermons that actually appeared in Scripture when men actually stood up to preach in Scripture. And getting the gospel right is just so critical here. So I want you to be listening, depending on, on where you are spiritually, in one of two ways. If you're a Christian already, please don't dismiss this as old hat. I've got this already. D.A. Carson wrote about the gospel that one generation believes the gospel, embraces it. Then the next generation tends to just assume it. 
But the generation that follows the assuming generation disregards it. How many generations does it take to lose the true gospel? Just one. Just one. I was reading some research by a gentleman named Sean Lucas. He was researching a particular local church um, in Mississippi, a great historic church that's now thriving. And he was researching the history of this particular church that was a great church in the 50s and now is a great church in the 21st century. He realized it was an anomaly. That there are many churches in the 50s and 60s across the U.S. that are actually absolutely vibrant churches, thriving churches. Some of them led by people that are just, well, they're heroic figures, heroic preachers, teachers, theologians. And what he found in a number of these churches, what they had in common is this. These churches led by what we would call phenomenal pastors and leaders that had great histories had this in common. They no longer exist. They're gone. They're off the map. They've ceased to exist. He said they're all thriving, large, significant churches. He says if congregational death can happen to these congregations, I realize it can happen to my congregation and yours. And listen to what he said. And I want to quote. He says, it would only take a generation for a church to show signs of decay. Perhaps a poor pastoral choice. A failure to continue to preach God's word faithfully. A transition in the church's understanding of its mission. An inability to see and adapt to the neighborhood around it. It's enough to cause us to get on our knees and to beg God to continue to grant mercy to our congregations and to grant them mercy in the generations after us. I want to do that right now. Before we launch into the gospel, the short, powerful synopsis of the gospel preached by Peter, I want to pray for the preservation of the gospel. In our church, not just for today, in 20. 22, but for your children's sake, my children's sake, and my grandchildren's sake, and yours. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would faithfully handle the truth of the good news. This is of utmost importance. Paul said, I preach to you what I receive of first importance. Father, I know that if we get the story of your son and your salvation for your glory, by your grace, empowered by your spirit, enabled by your son. If we get this wrong, it doesn't matter what we get right. Nothing else will matter. And Father, I pray that the gospel will be faithfully preached here, now, today, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or until Jesus returns. And may we continue to see people come to Jesus as Savior King for your glory, for their good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If you've been in church for a lot of your life, many years of your life, you've probably heard a lot of appeals that are called the gospel. A lot of invitations for people to follow Christ, ask Jesus in their heart, give their lives to Christ. You've probably heard a lot of man-centered self-help, benefits-to-me sort of appeals, how your life is going to improve, how you're going to be better, how marriage or relationships or future or jobs or self-image or all those things are going to be improved by this. This is a message unlike any of those. When Peter stood up, it was a challenge. It was a confrontation. It was a, it was a bold defiance against the world, endorsement of the greatness of Christ. It was a right between the eyes. No punches pulled, declaration of Jesus Christ. You know, you've heard me say this again and again, and I don't mind repeating this sort of idea. The ultimate reason that any of you in this room who are not Christians yet should embrace Jesus as Savior is because he is the king of the universe. And one day he's going to return as such, but it won't be like his coming was in the Gospels. It will not be as a servant. It will not be as an infant child, vulnerable and frail. He will be as a king riding on a white horse, and all of glory will be with him. All power will be around him. No one will be able to ignore him, and no one can defy him. And all the world will see him as he is. Read Revelation 19. This is Jesus coming back in power. And so Peter is staying there giving a gospel of power. What is he saying? What are the components of what he said? Jesus is the preexistent Christ of God. This isn't just some man that you killed. This isn't just some rabbi among many rabbis who had a different flavor or a different approach to the Old Testament or to the faith or a different set of ethics to live by. This wasn't someone who was just a profound and insightful moral teacher. And he was more than a miracle worker. We know from biblical history that Satan can work miracles. Miracles happen. It's not the supernatural that's so phenomenal here. What's most phenomenal about Christ is that this is the preexistent, already determined by the Father, King, who now has taken on human flesh and has come to dwell among us to launch the kingdom, to invite us into the kingdom. He's a preexistent Christ of God. He's not just Israel's king. Israel's king is the king of the nations. He's the universal king. And so the first thing he says is, this man who humbled himself... This man who submitted to you, this man who went to a cross like a lamb, 
Don't you understand who this is? This Jesus? This is the pre-existent Christ of God. This is the Messiah King. This is, this is God in the flesh in front of you. He says Jesus was sent by the Father in power to usher in the kingdom. The power of Jesus was not just the lessons taught, not just the sermons preached. It wasn't even just the miracles done. He comes in power. He's ushering in the kingdom that all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy God forever. And so everything that he did, he comes in power. And that's how the Apostle Paul described Jesus coming, coming in power. And why did he come? It's not just individual salvation. It's not just so you can have a personal relationship with God, which I get it. I get the concept. I grew up in church too. There's so much more to that. It's not just that you can have this private, individualized, self-styled engagement with God on your own terms. It's so that you would understand who is the king of glory and what does he intend to do? What is the plan of God? So you would begin to see, and this is what's so beautiful about Peter's sermon. He's weaving together those Old Testament texts with the reality of what Christ has done in the Gospels and what's coming next. So you will see who he is. He was sent by the Father. And then he tells them this, Jesus was killed by your hand. But here's the thing that would have made their head spin a bit. It was also by God's plan. Huge. You were doing what your evil hearts willed you to do. You were doing what your brokenness and your rebelliousness and your darkness led you to do. You were rejecting him out of hand. But understand this, you are not infinite in power. You are not sovereign. You are not in control. This universe is, is mine, says God. I will fulfill my purposes in it. And part of my glorious purpose is part of my amazing mercy and grace being poured out for you is that even though you will reject and kill my son, he will go to the cross nonetheless. He will be obedient to the will of the Father. He will carry out this plan, and he will die for sinners like me and you. He says, and you killed him. What is he saying? Your, your blood. I mean, your blood. His blood is on your hands. His blood is on your hands. When you look at the cross, that, that's you. You know, we, we have these phrases we use because we use them so long they start to become devoid of meaning. You know, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and that's not something just sort of simple and casual. That's to look at Christ and realize that is me there. Why is the doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus so critical? Why is it so important for us to understand that he was virgin born? He did not inherit the sin nature of Adam, but that his father is God. His, he was birthed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Why is it so important to understand that he faced every temptation that was common to man, yet he did not sin? So when you look at the cross, you see his blood's on my hands. I did this. This is me there. This is the punishment of God. Jesus was killed by your hand. But this is, this is the critical point of the gospel right here. He was raised physically from the dead and is the living king. Now listen, I know these are obvious truths for anybody who understands the gospel story. It dawned on me several years ago that in my conversations with people, when I say several years ago, I only mean like four or five, and I've been preaching for 25 or so, that the majority of Christians I talk to, when you ask them about the gospel, to explain the gospel, or what did they believe when they became a Christian, what makes them a believer, 
Here's what I found again and again and again. You tell me if this is not true in your conversations or even in some of the things you've expressed. I ask people to give the gospel, and they stop with this, Jesus died for my sins. If you stop with Jesus died for my sins, you do not have gospel. In fact, that was the worst of days. That was the day where Satan feels like he has triumphed. The world is at its darkest. His people are at their lowest. There is no good news, which is what gospel means. There is no message to proclaim to the nations if Jesus simply died for your sins. History is littered with the deaths of religious martyrs and zealots, prophets and rabbis. Jesus did not merely die for our sins. The glory of Christ is that he was raised physically from the dead. The same body that went in is the same body that came out. And it's not just this nebulous modern idea. Well, not even so modern. It's really an old idea that we just keep repackaging in new terms. It's not just this idea of spiritual resurrection. You know, lots of people who consider themselves, and I hate to use air quotes, but here they come, spiritual, well, I know, you know, I know grandma's with us. I know she's around. I know she's looking around. I know when I go out, go out in that garden, she's right there. No, brother, she's not. That's not how it works. If she's dead, she's waiting the judgment of God. She's waiting for the dead in Christ to be raised and she gets to go to glory or she's waiting for the final judgment. But here's the deal. Jesus came out of that grave physically. And the reason it took three days is because in that Jewish concept... That's when they finally felt that the spirit departed from the body. There would have been skeptics in the first century if he had been raised on day one or day two that had said, oh, he never really died. But after three days, you know, you begin to notice someone is dead. It doesn't matter how much you wrap them. It doesn't matter what kind of spices you put on them. Like Lazarus, when he was raised, they said of Lazarus, he's so dead, he stinketh. When Jesus came out of the grave, he walked out. Why are those physical appearances so important? Why are those eyewitnesses so important? Man, we saw him. We touched him. We ate with him. We were with him. This is, this is critical. And not just for the physicality of it, displaying that God is true. Jesus fulfilled every promise. He's everything he said he was. It's a reminder to us that when we worship, just as when they worship, we're not worshiping an idea, a concept. We're not holding weekly memorial services on Sunday. Jesus is alive. And when he ascended, it wasn't just this idea, guys, I'm going to go away for a while. You have at it. I'm going back to where I came. I'm going to be sitting on the throne. All this is mine. I've got this. I'm going in power. He says there are many witnesses of these facts. And then that Jesus ascended to the Father is critical to the gospel. He ascended to the Father where he now sits exalted as the ruling king. The ruling king. So the gospel that we see coming out of the scriptures is no mere superficial, your life is going to get better, just ask Jesus into your heart, your sins can be forgiven, or one that I recoil from that I remember hearing years ago, and I watched him say this on national TV, as if this is some sort of gospel presentation. Just give Jesus a try. Give him a try. And, 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 and see if after 30 days you're not satisfied. I didn't know if he was talking about Jesus or New Coke. Just give him a try? How do you give the king of the universe a try? You either surrender to him and submit his authority or you are crushed by him. He is King Jesus. 
And Peter's not appealing to your emotions here. He's not, he's not appealing to your self-image here, your ideation here. He's appealing to reality here. This is ultimate, folks. You've got to understand. What you thought you were doing, you did not. What you thought was happening was not. Who you thought he was, he is not. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you what he's done. And then he says this, know this for certain. This, you've got to know for certain. This is the gospel. And I, this framework that I've just shared with you, apply this framework every time now you read in the New Testament. Every other preacher, Paul and every other apostle, every other speaker, and see that it doesn't fit this framework. What I received, I passed on to you. And this is that gospel. And he says, know this. This is what God has done in Christ. Now, what was their reaction to that? This is the part where if we fly through this text, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the weight of this. This reaction is a desperate reaction. This is a cry for help and mercy. What shall we do? It's the ideas of, is there any hope? How how do we fix this? What do we do now? Based on everything that you've said, what... We're on the wrong side of this. We're sinful. We're part of this. We're on the wrong side of of God himself. What shall we do? He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Man, it's like a sword. They were cut to the heart. You can use a lot of different synonyms and metaphors and similes here. They were devastated. They were distraught. They were wrecked. What do we do with this? How do we respond? And I want you to be crystal clear in this, in your own understanding and how you share it with others. At that moment, after Peter had laid out the story, the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, what he had planned for us from the foundations of the earth, when they said, what do we do now? The answer was not, be a better you. Get your act together. Man, you better turn things around. You better shape up. There's no moralism here. There's no self-help here. There's no fix-it here. There's no shape-up here. What does he say to do? Peter said to them, repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What do we do? With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You don't have to go down with everybody else. You don't have to go down the same path. You don't have to face the same judgment. Save yourselves by repenting, believing, responding to Christ. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What shall we do? And they did it. Cut to the heart by the miraculous work of God's Spirit. And they responded. Believe. Believe. No mere mental assent or agreement. 
No mere recollection of facts and events, but to believe the components of what he just said. My lostness, my separation from God, my desperate need, what Christ has done for me. Paul would later write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of this gospel, this good news, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This has got to sink to the heart. You've got to believe this, that in this broken world, full of sin, both mine and yours and all the collective ways which we have learned to sin, this dark kingdom that holds us captive, there is an answer, there is a deliverer, there is a king who has come to conquer sin and death and the grave, usher in a new kingdom. Repent and believe. They starts with belief. And then he says repent. Again, repent is not just assenting mentally to the wrongness of sin or the idea of sin. This is not philosophical, ideological. That's not repentance. And it's not just feeling bad about it. It's not just remorse or regret. That can be devastating, yes, but that's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Don't leave here feeling devastated that you're a sinner. Don't leave here feeling hopeless that you've wrecked it that you've made a mess of life so far. Don't leave here with the idea of, what do I do now? I, I can't go back and undo it. My aim, nor Peter's aim, nor the aim of the Holy Spirit is to leave you feeling guilty and trapped in guilt. That's not repentance. We demonstrate true repentance when we hate the sin that has wrecked us. We hate the sin that has held us captive. We, we hate the sin that has had such control over us and such devastating effects in our lives. We hate that sin. And in hating that sin, we turn to a Savior who not only forgives us, but frees us. It's not just desiring forgiveness one day when you stand before the Father. It's desiring freedom today from the sins that made you into who you are right now. Set me free. I repent. I turn from this that I'm in in hatred to you. God, whom I love because of Christ. Al Mohler said, we demonstrate true repentance by a genuine hatred of sin with a spirit-empowered desire to never engage in that sin again and a spirit-driven determination to obey Jesus instead. It's leaving one king and one kingdom for another and saying, I'll be faithful to you. As a mark of that faithfulness, that allegiance, he says, be baptized. How might I express? What's the premier way? What's the initial way that I might express my new allegiance? That I'm under the banner of a new king and that I live in a new kingdom. He says it is to be baptized. In this way, I embody this. I embody this allegiance. I recognize the gospel in my baptism, that Christ, who was perfect and crucified and buried and risen again, also gives me new life. And now, I've been crucified with Christ. Yet, I've been crucified with Christ. This life I live now, I don't live in the flesh anymore. But I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been raised in Christ. This new life is mine, and I am allegiant to the King who did this for me. And baptism is a mark of that. And he says, when you repent and believe, baptism is that obedient mark. He says, this is going to happen because this is what marks you as mine. This is what seals you forever. 
And this is what empowers you to be that new person that I've created you to be. This is what makes 2 Corinthians 5, 7 true. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. How? Regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now I've got the means. I've got the desire supernaturally placed in me by God himself. I've got the ability to faithfully follow, serve, and obey the king. He says, and this is my promise to you. So that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the gospel of the king. I want to turn your attention before we pray together to Revelation 19. I mentioned that to you just a moment ago, and I think it might be worth our reading together. You'll, you'll not see it on the screen. But I want you to see a picture of what is coming our way. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see why Peter said to them that day, save yourselves from this wicked and corrupt generation? Do you see why the ascension of Jesus is so critical now? Do you see why the message of the angels who spoke to those who witnessed the ascension is so important now? You saw him go. You will see him return. And so now... Men like Peter, empowered by God's Spirit, preach with boldness because of King Jesus. And they know that that day, the day that Joel the prophet spoke of, that Peter referenced, that day will be, well, just beyond wonderful for those who are in Christ. To see our King coming, to see the end of brokenness and destruction and despair and death, and to see the initiation of the rule and reign of Christ, man. We long for that consummation. We long to see King Jesus because that's our king. That's our army. Those are our people. But this wicked and corrupt generation, he comes to judge. You see, when Jesus comes again, and this is what Peter was, was speaking towards, when he comes again, it is not to be crucified again. It is not to suffer again. It is not to offer himself again. The offer is now. When he comes again, he comes to separate and to judge or reward. He comes to validate the faith of us. He comes to vindicate the scriptures in himself. 
or judge the nations. Which will it be? Save yourselves. See, the good news of the gospel is this. If you will look on Jesus, whom you had a part in crucifying because of your sin, if you'll look on him and see that this is the promised one of God from all time, before time, and that he came for our sake, for our salvation, so that we could be freed from this kingdom, the dominion of darkness and death, Scripture calls it, that we could enter into his kingdom both now and he could rule and reign over us until it's finally and fully consummated in the new heavens and new earth, and we enjoy that forever with him in his presence, his fullness of joy. Then all who call upon my name, Jesus said, will be saved. Believe. Repent. As a mark of that allegiant faith, belief, that turning from sin to God in Christ, be baptized. Take on the banner of Christ. God says, I will give you my spirit. and You will be mine forever and ever. And there's no better news than that. I'm going to ask if you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. As the worship team comes and we're going to sing a song in response, I want you to do this just for, just for a moment, just everybody in the room. As a testimony, really, and more as a statement of gratitude to God for his great salvation and less as an affirmation for my sake, if you belong to Christ, if you have believed and repented, it's a mark of that. You've been baptized. God's spirit dwells in you marking you as his. If that's you, if I've already described you, you're one of his. You're one of the bought ones, one of the saved ones, one of the now sent ones. If that's you, would you just, would you just lift up your hand and as you do in praise to the Father for the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Son. Praise God for salvation for many. Now listen, you can put your hands down, but if that's not you, I'm telling you, I want to give you the same message. Peter, save yourself today. That doesn't mean you can save yourself by what you do. It means you can step out of that old life. You can leave that old world. You can abandon the old beliefs. You can acknowledge your sin and run from it and run to Jesus. You can say, I believe these things to be true, that the story of Christ is true, that he is the sent one of God, that he did live perfectly, that he did die sacrificially, not because he was guilty, but because I am. Oh, but God vindicated him, showing us that he is truly God and raised him from the dead three days later. And so many saw him. And they watched him ascend. And the next major event on God's timeline is his return. I believe these things. God saved me. What do I do? What do I do in light of King Jesus coming back? Turn from your sin. Believe in him. Turn from your sin. Declare your allegiance to him. Receive his Holy Spirit. And we'll celebrate that forever with you. What an amazing thought that what you do today, in the next few moments, could be the cause of your everlasting celebration. Just wherever you are right now, and people are praying, and no one's looking, so I'm not trying to single anybody out. If that's you, say, I want to be saved today. I, I, I want to turn from my sins. I've done that. I, I've asked God to forgive me. I've turned from my sins. I've turned to him. 
God, save me now through Christ. If that's your prayer, will you just lift up your hands? There's anybody in this room? Thank you. That's awesome. Father God, even now, hear the prayer of the repentant. Father, the one who no longer wants to live in that world apart from you, in opposition to you, in rebellion against you, but now wants to run to you. May they know the fullness of your forgiveness. Father, may they now, in faith, allegiance to you, declare that allegiance, saying, I want to be baptized. I want, to, I, want, I want the world to know, and I want the church to know. I, too, belong to Jesus. Father, give them your Holy Spirit, I pray, just as you have promised. We can't do this. We can't live this. We can't be this apart from your Holy Spirit. This is supernatural work. So we need your supernatural work in us. Father, may that happen right now, just as you promised, right now. May they know it. I pray you confirm it by your Spirit in them. They know your Spirit to their Spirit that they are yours. And whoever else may see or hear or listen, or for the messages that are going to go out from this room and the conversations we're going to have about you. Father, I pray you repeat this again and again and again and again until Jesus comes. Until Jesus comes again. Father, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the beautiful, transcendent gospel made possible by your mercy. The obedient faithfulness of your son the life-changing, life-giving power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.